Welcome to the Sales Lead Dog Podcast, hosted by CRM technology and sales process expert, Christopher Smith, talking with sales leaders that have separated themselves from the rest of the pack. Listen to find out how the best of the best achieve success with their team and CRM technology. And remember, unless you are the lead dog, the view never changes. Welcome to Sales Lead Dog. Today, we have joining us Bradley Pastor of GuardSquare. Bradley is the Chief Revenue Officer and super excited to have you here on Sales Lead Dog. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Uh, thank you for having me, Gas. Really appreciate it. Uh, look forward to our conversation today. Yeah, awesome. Bradley, tell me about GuardSquare. Sure. So GuardSquare, we are a Belgium headquartered company. We have U.S. operations based out of Boston. We also have development offices in Munich, Germany. And we're focused around a really important problem that we solve, which is mobile application protection. So if you think of all the devices that everyone has, both Android and iOS, we help protect the actual mobile app itself. And chances are, if you have you know, a device in your hand, you are running apps on your phone that we actually protect. And what we protect them against is things such as fraud, risk, IP theft on the phone. So not necessarily you as an individual, but we'll protect the information that a company develops, puts inside the app. We'll protect against fraud. Uh, we'll protect against reverse engineering on the app, other more specific things, API hooking, things like that. And they allow organizations, financial services, media entertainment, lifestyle companies, food ordering companies to provide a secure, seamless, trusted interaction through their mobile app for their customers. Yeah, it's tremendous and so needed today because let's face it, everything is on mobile. Absolutely. And it's something that a lot of people don't think about, right? You just blindly go use your app. Uh, iOS is a little bit more secure than Android, but it's not secure most people think that but certainly on android apps i mean you can download them really any place and how do you know it's the real app you're downloading how do you know it's authenticated how do you know when you're playing a game and a lot of games have real money associated with them that you're playing an environment where you're not subject to being cheated and, and lose or if you're the producer how do you know that people aren't cheating and costing you revenue so yeah. it's a problem that a lot of people don't think about but it is a real problem oh yeah especially if you think about uh uh children or teenagers, people that are, they, they just assume, they, it is never entering their mind that they're just, hey, I'm downloading it, I'm using it, do you need my credit card? Sure, I put in mom and dad's right. credit card, have at it. You know, it is exactly. one of those things you just assume is there, but oh my gosh, if it's not, that's a big problem. Correct. So Bradley, looking back over your whole career, mm -hmm. three things that you feel have really contributed to your success in getting you to a chief revenue officer? Sure. So I mean, probably any individual topic or any of the three could be a conversation of themselves. These are going to be different for every individual. I would say for myself, one is ultimately you own your own journey. And so no one's there's a lot of people who've helped me. There's a lot of people who continue to help me. There's uh, people that probably not been great, but they've helped me by helping me define who and where and what I want to spend my time with. But ultimately, you own that journey, right? So I would say number one is you have to own that. Number two is you, I believe, have to define what's important to you. So if you go back and you talk to 
Bradley when he was in elementary school or something like that. A chief revenue officer, let alone sales, wasn't, you know, on career day, I don't think anyone shows up. It's like, here's my dad. He's the CRO, right? It's my mom's a doctor, the fireman, the things like that. But what I did realize over time was there were certain aspects of leadership role and selling role that I really enjoyed doing. And once I was able to identify what those things are, the CR role, head of sales, whatever you want to call it, that aligned itself very well with that. And then finally, the third thing is, this is sort of a funny one, but really never be too full of yourself. Hmm. I mean, I'm a CRO and there are people that look at me and say, well, you're a CRO, you've achieved, but I, I have so much more to learn in a game. And I would say, continue to be inquisitive, right? It's the people who are 80 years old and go run marathons. It's the people that learn and pick up painting. It's the people that uh, decide to go take a trip to places unknown. Once you stop learning, you're, you're, you're in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. So I would say it's those three elements around it where you own your journey. Uh, it's continue growing and developing in there and then try to figure out what are the things that are important to you and where can you define a role that it's not gonna do everything you want, but it's gonna give enough of what you want. Yeah. You know, listening to you, there's a common thread in those answers of, around humility as well. Would you agree with that? I think so. Um, I wouldn't say I've always been that way. Uh, <laughs> so I'm married to a fantastic woman who makes sure that, you know, I, I remain humble. I have three kids. And if you've ever had kids or, I mean, mm. I have three kids. I also have a dog and two cats. So any combination of those, let alone all of them together, Get you humble, right? I go beautiful day. <clears throat> You're in, out in uh, Colorado. I'm here in Massachusetts. You get one of those perfect picturesque days. Put the dog on a leash. Go for a run. He wants to stop every five feet and sniff. He wants to run really fast. He wants to go chase whatever. Go home, sit on the couch with the cat. Cat throws up. Like you know, so you you think you have everything aligned and everything's perfect, and you're just you know do the pet metaphor. You're the cat's meow, right? And there you go. Yep. So if you don't. I, I call it as you need to have a certain level of grace, right? Yeah. And I, I don't all the time. I'd like to think that I do, but that's really, look, you know what? Life is hard. Uh, I don't, I don't, you know, we're not getting metaphysical here, but like it has, it's enough challenges, right? It yeah. has enough of those things, but if you just take a pause back, you recognize that everyone's human. You recognize that really, for the most part, people come from a place of good. And ultimately it's not about you. It's, right. it's not about me, right? Then. I think we can have good conversations with good people. You can hopefully have short conversations with people who aren't good and you can get along your day and then develop those relationships that are meaningful. And those are the things that center your life. Awesome. You mentioned young Bradley earlier. What did young Bradley want to be when you were growing up? Oh, geez, that's a silly one. It's not, it's a good question. It's probably a silly answer. I, I wanted to be either James Bond or Batman, right? And then I think there was something in, I found a, a, an article or, or school paper I wrote where it said in 20 years, and at the time, 20 years would have been like 35, right? I, um, and I think we were living in Virginia as a family. So I was going to have, live in DC, was going to have a house in the Chesapeake area. I was going to be US Senator, which you and I, I think, are of a certain age where if you think back, that was actually something aspirational. Now, I'm not sure anyone would want to do that, let alone be in politics. So there was this whole life. And now I look back at it at 51 and I look back and I was like, holy cow, like I've, I've either haven't achieved anything against my younger goals or they were so directionally terrible. Uh, I also thought like I, you know, I might want to be a cook. 
be a chef somewhere around there. Now, like in my later years, um, I think if I had to be honest with myself, I probably should have gone into the trades, mm-hmm. be a, a general contractor, something like that. I think honestly, I, I probably would have been very happy doing that. Oh, know? I think about that all the time. I, I think I would have loved to have been an electrician. Um, I, you know, like you said, I love building stuff, especially with my hands and, and right. uh, uh, no, that's, that's pretty good. Um, how'd you get your start in sales? Um, the, the, I was going to say the wrong way, the different way. So I have a, a BA in government and then I have a master's in public administration and I went down the MPA path because I have both ADD and I have dyscalculia. Dyscalculia is a, is a, think of it as dyslexia, but with numbers. So I can understand numbers. I can do all that stuff, but the ability to process them really quickly is a challenge. So again, I'll age myself here. You go back to when I graduated, uh, college and then you're looking at maybe graduate work for a couple years in and back then mba programs were hardcore you had to do the gmat you had to do this there were no one-year options executive options there wasn't it was like you take the gmat either you fail and you don't get in or maybe you do right there was no second option It, it just look it just wasn't working right it wasn't for me but i like the concept of business i like all those things i also looked at my i have an older sister who was had a master well she has masters in occupational therapy and gerontology at nyu she was working with alzheimer's dementia units in that segment of the population seeing you know look early on sales what's my market where can i go sell to oh there's this growing population of older people that are going to need care so the idea of working public administration going down the non-for-profit sector side doing elder advocacy maybe lobbying hugely interesting when did it uh i was coaching rowing. I was taking graduate school and working full time at it. So it took me three years to get my master's, did it, finished. And then I was offered a job, ironically, selling life insurance to seniors, which just seems probably one of the most evil propositions out there, right? Hey, you're 85, but let's buy a term whole life insurance for 30 years, right? Like I just, a friend of mine was working at a software company in tech support by the name of Watermark Software. Watermark Software the, the tie-in for Watermark for, for people who follow these things was the CEO is David Scott. So if you follow Four Entrepreneurs, one of the blogs, he was the CEO. Tom Erickson of Acquia fame, and he runs a computing school over University of Wisconsin. He was the VP of sales. So sort of yeah. for Massachusetts for that time period, interesting pedigree. I came in, got a job working tech support. I was making, I think, 32,000 a year, could wear shorts to work. They had the proverbial foosball table, margarita Thursdays, or I could work for Fallon Community Healthcare wearing a suit doing uh, insurance presentations for seniors. A very difficult proposition, of course, right? Went to work at Watermark, did a couple years in tech support, really enjoyed tech support. And one of the things I got to do was we sold a lot through partners. So we did partner training. So I started doing partner training like that, did a little bit of a dance in terms of product management. So again, not to age myself here, this was before the internet a little bit. We had modems, we dial out, do those things. And we started with this web product. So I became a product manager of the Watermark web series. And uh, a woman who worked in marketing on our team and the PM team, she left to another company by the name of PC Docs, and they were looking for pre-sales people. And I had no idea even what that was. And it was like, well, you're sort of selling, but you're sort of technical. And it's like what you do in training and enablement, but like you're tied to sales. Right. Oh, okay. Right, right, right. 
went over, interviewed a PC docs uh, for a great guy named Scott West, hired me, and I was like, this is awesome. Love being an SE. Continued being an SE, was working there, and a gentleman by uh, the name of, um, uh, so I stayed at PC docs. My buddy left PC docs. I followed him over to a company called Ebram. I was the second SE inside of, of Ebram as a solution engineer, a sales engineer. That grew to, I had a team of three underneath me and I ran the East Coast. As a pre-sales team and as an individual tied to one of the, one of the sales reps, we were the number one sales pod in the company. And a guy who was working with us, Handy Hayden, said to me, he's like, you should really be in the sales. So if anyone has to blame for where I am now, it's completely 100% Handy's fault. So find him on LinkedIn, blame him for me. Yeah. Eric Fisher was the VP of sales, local guy as well. And I pled and I begged and I threatened to quit. And Eric was like, fine, we're letting you can come over and you can run sales. And so I moved over and I became a sales rep for that. I continued being a sales rep on an SE comp plan. So if you're familiar with the difference, one is less, one is more, one is upside, one doesn't sometimes. Yeah. I was the only person in the company, I did President's Club three years in a row, both as an SE, both as an individual rep. Uh, I won a Rolex for you know contribution quota performing. We were the top one and two quota producing teams in the company. So it was a great, great run. And then from there, I did a little bit of zigzaggy from, you know, I leveraged some of the pre-sales and the sales stuff to run business development. I ran pre-sales teams, did all that stuff. And then where I started getting into more heavy direct management was, uh, a buddy of mine who I worked with at E-Room, this guy, Jake Srothman, he's the chief marketing officer at Visor Technologies out of Vancouver. He was at, I think this was maybe the second, second company I worked with, a Japanese company. They decided one day to shut down U.S. operations. So we're talking, I'm like, Jesus, like, what the hell do I do now? But I was able to parlay my business development doing OEM licensing, my technical skills, my individual skills to get a job at Autonomy, which was eventually Crappy Hiller Packard running their OEM business. Yeah. And that ran for about a three-year period of time. We were, uh, again, consistently overachieving quota there. I became, I worked for a gentleman named Harold Collette, who was my boss there. And then he left Autonomy. I eventually followed him over to Bloomberg where he was building a business unit over at Bloomberg around risk and compliance around messaging. We built that business from low single digits millions to multi-digit millions uh, in there. He wound up leaving. I shortly thereafter, uh, you know, if your mentor boss leaves, you know, people are like, why'd you leave? I'm like, well, like my friend, my mentor, my boss left. But after four and a half years, not being in financial services was sort of time to leave. Going to a compliance company focused around GRC in New Jersey. Uh, the CRO there was a guy, Bill Dietrich. Bill used to work with Jake back in the day, knew me from the area. You know, so I mean, there's sort of a thread through these things. Bill was probably for me, he was my CRO. I was VP of sales, probably one of the most at that level transformative leaders I've ever worked for. And I owe tremendous debt of credit to him in, in terms of just how he helped me and helped me think about things. RSAM got acquired. So great story. We got acquired by a company in Vancouver, but again, if you're management, usually you get acquired and you start the process again. Worked at risk methods for a little under three years. So supply chain risk, sort of similar area. Yeah. Uh, had a great run at, at risk methods, but then the opportunity presented itself after a little under three years to come join Guard Square. And uh, that's where I am. So that's the, 
Is that the long yeah. version, short version? It's the version. Uh, it's the long version, but it's really good because I think people need to hear that, that there were some real themes in there that I'm really glad you told it that way because, you know, my takeaways from, from what you just described is number one, and you said this early on, you don't do this alone. You had right. quite a few people helping you on this journey, this path to where you are today um, that, you know, also it sounds like you were able to pick out, um, I, I, I don't call it luck. You know, some people say, oh, you were lucky to work with some great people, but I, I think a lot of people make their own luck. And, and right. uh, you know, being able to pick out like, hey, this, this is a good opportunity with a good person, I'm gonna take that lead. Um, I think to move forward and have that kind of success like you've had, that's a skill, you know, that you have to, people have to look for. You can't just wait for things to happen. And, uh, um, you know, the other part too is, is producing results. Wherever you've been, you've been able to produce significant results. Sure. So thinking about that, what advice would you have for someone that wants to have a similar journey in their career? Sure, I would say don't ruminate on your mistakes. So I've, I've had, you know, I gave you the highlights. There's a low right. light reel as well inside there. Uh, and again, there's all this metaphysical stuff, right? You can't have the sun if you don't have the rain. So the ability for me to recognize the, as you put it, the luck, the good fortune, whatever around where it is, was also tied to the other circumstances. And we'll gloss over those of other opportunities where it wasn't a good fit or there was a problem. And I think it's really challenging. I see that in a lot of people, uh, sort of the, some of the current younger workforce now where they haven't had to deal with adversity. So I've gone through 08, I've gone through 9-11, other, you know, all these other things where they were monumental shifts. And so I can look and I go, you know what, there's a softening overall in the economy and business, but like, we'll get through this, right? And if you don't have those bad days, and if you don't have those challenges, if you don't have those challenges in your career, well, let me, let me answer it a little bit differently. I've worked for some really, and with people who have been challenging, and the takeaway from those is you then register in your head, what type of leader do you want to be? Right. Big time. And it's like, you have to have that adversity to hone your blade, so to speak, you know, like you got to have something rough to rub against to sharpen yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise you're just, you're never really going to get where you need to be, I think, because you don't have that perspective. Right. And you're always, I mean, ultimately you're going to sell yourself short, right? Yeah. Yeah. What advice do you give to your younger team members, you know, about what they should be focusing on for their career? I, if anyone's ever interviewed with me, they'll largely get the same speech, which is, or pitch. It's one, it's about alignment. And I can't answer that for you. I can say what we can offer. I can say what we can do. I can give you, I've offered to give people references, people who used to work for me. So it's not, you know, we always ask when we're interviewing, I want your references. I'd say, here's, here's people who've worked for me in individual contributed roles. Here's other people, reach out to them, find out who I am. Do you think you can work with me, right? Yeah. So there's that aspect of it. The other is uh, give yourself two years, right? I mean, it's not the end of the road, but two years is usually a good reasonable part. And also be honest about what you want. So if you want to get into sales, 
you're probably going to wind up being an SDR, BDR, X, X, whatever, right, R. And those jobs really aren't great. I started in tech support. Tech support, let's be frank, tech support sort of sucks. Like it's not that great of a role, but it was an entry point. It was better than selling life insurance to end of life people. And it opened the door for everything where I am now. And if you look and you say, well, I want to, you know, I don't want to be an SDR because my comp is 40, 20, 60 KOT and this sucks. Well, like, where are you going to start? And, and that is the point of an entry point job and opportunity. And I know SDRs who have done well over that because they work it. And one of the companies I work for, our top, not quota, but our top earning people were account managers selling into the install base. So the AEs on, on target had a better plan, right? Like, ooh, I'm going to make whatever, 300,000 OT, 150, 150. And the AMs might have been 100, 100. The AMs were making more money right? Because they knew the relationship, they knew the customers. So you know, those. So I, I would say, give it a couple of years, figure out again, what's that path and where you want to get to it. And then honestly, you really need to be honest with yourself. So if you want to be in CS, you want to be in sales, you want to be here, you want to be there. Those are the things you need to look at and don't carve your own path. So that's great. Your friends are at a place where you can bring dogs and kombucha on tap. And I don't know if places have that anymore, but what do you want to do so that you can move yourself forward, that you're going to address it. And I know a guy who started as an SDR at a, at a company, won't mention the company, but they had a great training program and he's developed and he's continued to do well and he's progressed as an AE and he's been there almost three years. You can see SDR, um, junior AE, AE, right? He's going to be in a very good position to go and develop. And I've talked to him and he's like, I'm learning and I'm growing and that's what you want to hear. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That that's one of my personal frustrations is that, um, you know, I see this in my world where um, people are interviewing for a role and they, they all want to start at the top. And I have to tell them, you're not ready. You know, like if I were right. to bring you in at the at the top and you're not ready, I'm doing a disservice to you because three months in, I'm going to have to fire you because you can't perform at that level. You don't you haven't learned enough yet. You know, so that, right. that's, I think, a big part of being a leader is having those conversations with people and and helping them understand that, look, there's there's only one way really to advance forward truly and, and keep that sustainable, and that's working hard. Correct. Right. Yep. What's yeah. the one area that you've struggled with the most as a sales leader? I would say trying to understand, you know, sort of motivating people. Mm-hmm. There's there's a belief that we as leaders can somehow magically hit the motivate button. And I look at the Celtics playing the Miami Heat on paper, mm-hmm. without the doubt, they should have been the better team. And the coach couldn't motivate the team to operate at the level they are. So is the coach's fault, like, you know, maybe, but Tatum, Jalen, Marcus, like the rest of the team, they're all superstars on paper. Like, don't they own some culpability to the outcome of what's going? And you see that tremendous amount in sports where you have top tier athletes and the, and the coaches get fired, right? Coach, manager in baseball, whatever. And no one really takes a pause and says like, well, oh, we pay them $300 million for a 10 year agreement, $30 million a year. Um, they should be motivated themselves, but like, no, right. Mm-hmm. So it's, 
I haven't cracked that code and I talked to the leaders and maybe the reason why I haven't cracked that code is because you can't crack that code. Right. Like you need, you need that hum to be able to get going. So I try to hopefully create an environment. I try to, and I say, I use words try because it's always a work in progress. I try to help them understand the tie-in. One area where I was really successful was we tied activity to a clear outcome. So I had someone who had student loans. So we figured out, we did the math of here's your student loan, here's what it costs, here's what it is, here's how it leads. And for this, this particular individual, it was really good where they could see my activities tied to student loan. And if I can do this, I can retire a student loan, I can work it through there. But also not everyone's going to share that with you. And it's also not appropriate. Like right. you might be like, you're like my boss, like, what do I want to share this with you? But if you say to someone, what motivates you? And they're like, nothing, yeah. we're in trouble, oh, right? Yeah. Yeah, because I do. So I there's there's an element of personal accountability. How do you motivate someone who had, doesn't have <clears throat> personal accountability? It's right. impossible. It um, I had an interview really early on where where the interviewer CEO said to me, "He's like, so uh, do you gamble? Do you uh, do you have expensive cars? Like, in you know, in retrospect, it was probably not appropriate level questions. I got what he was saying, but it was like, what do you?" fiscally tied into where I know you're going to work your ass off. Right. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't, that's I don't old think... school. That's an old school. Oh, 100%. <laughs> 100%. He asked some other questions, which I won't repeat online here, but it was, you know, exactly where he was heading with all those things. Oh, now yeah. I would not ask him like, hey, do you want to come to work? Right. You know, I mean, that's yeah. sort of the level of yeah. questions now. Yeah. Um, let's talk about building your team. Do you sure. have a particular philosophy or strategy around how you build out a team as a sales leader? So I, I subscribe to a little bit of a thought, and Mark Rebuchet has talked about this in some of his books, his podcasts, whatever. So if it sounds familiar, it does sound familiar, but uh, I'll tell everyone, heart's honest truth, I have this point of view as well. But it's there's one concept, which is the feet on the street for quote allocation. You have a million dollars, you divide it up, that's how many people you have. You have a plus one, you hire to fire, that whole mentality. I, I don't like that. I didn't like it as a rep. I think when I was in IC, the reason why we were successful was because we were always running in the red line. And you know, when I was at Bloomberg, Mike Bloomberg would always talk about, I want to give our most critical projects to the busiest people because the busiest people get shit done, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to hire and make sure that I may not have 100% quota coverage, but where I want to have the team is, I want to have everyone on the team, the best potential to be successful based upon if they work hard, then they're going to crush it. It makes no sense, excuse me, I get the model and I understand it where it's like, let's hire all these people and let's build them out. But when you wind up having one eagle and she's slaying it and crushing it. And then you have a whole bunch of other people at like 20% of the number. Then you have high turnover. That's not good for your customers. It's not good for the company. And, and that is a model that I think was largely supported the last decade or so because someone's going to write you a check for $100 million. What are you going to do? You're going to build out the office. You're going to hire a bunch of people. Yeah. What do you do with those people? And that's, I think it did a lot of people a huge disservice. And, and again, I came up where it was like, you guys want to build out the pharmaceutical thing? Fine. Here's $3 million quota. You go figure it out. You're like, oh, crap. You know? Yeah. And that's, that's what we did. So that's a way that I'd like to hire around it. And I'd like to, to have that. And that's been a model that's been successful. So, you know, typically scale down the teams and then have the team and the individuals, the best potential be successful. And then you can tie it into the motivation, right? Oh, yeah. look, everyone's doing this. So you can get there. Or if everyone's not doing this, then you could say, here's the opportunity for you. Right. 
How do you interview for that? How do you discern that when you're hiring? Uh, so there's, when I worked for, uh, for Bill Dietrich, he outlined, and it's sort of his IP, so I won't get into it, but there's a set of characteristics. There's a hiring scorecard. Sammy Bolas from Avenue Talent Partners has one. You can find them all over the place. But basically, he had a, a framework around hiring. And it was really straightforward, made a lot of sense. And basically, if you think of something like Medic as a sales framework for forecasting, think of a similar framework for hiring in each sort of step or thing that you're going to interview for represents a characteristic. And so when you would bring in a people interview, you'd say, hey, Chris, I want you to look to see what's this person's motivation. Hey, Sue, I want you to see if they're aligned with what we do. So you're you're interviewing not for the whole like, how you doing? It's I'm interviewing for you because I want to understand how you drive a deal. So my questions for you are going to be specific. All right, I see you were an AU, 110%. What was your quota? How much did you achieve? What a period of time did you achieve? Can you walk me through a deal? Well, how much of that was? What did it start at list price? Did you discount? What was the revenue split? What was services? What was this? Like, and so all I'm doing is drilling down that. And then the other person might just be like, hey, why do you want to work here? And then you take those elements, you build it together as a scorecard. For, for me, Let's say we do all those things and it's wonderful. A kiss of death for me is if people don't send a follow-up No, I'm sorry. I'm not going to hire you. Amen. Yeah. I, I uh, isn't it funny? Oh my that, God. Yeah. It's like such a fun, like my dad, I remember when I was interviewing, I'm like, you know, yeah, think about how many years ago it was decades ago. Right. <laughs> that was one of the things my dad just pounded into me. And it's probably so, male, right? It's like, go in there with a thank you card, ready to go, stamps, everything you need. You're walking out the door and you're dropping that in the mail. Right. Um, and, it's, I, and I try to prompt people, right? Yeah. I go, they go, what's important to you? Follow up. Yeah. If you have any questions, my email address is in the calendar invite. So they know how to get in right. touch with me. Yeah. Crickets. No, exactly. And, and uh, um, I, I yeah, that's that's funny. I mean, it just I'm stunned by how like that just seems to have gone the wayside. And uh, um, I, I tell my kids, you know, they're in that stage now. My daughter graduated she's school. She's in grad school and interviewing. Okay. I'm telling her, hey, as soon as you leave that email, as soon as you get a phone, send an email. Thank you, everybody you interviewed with. And okay. uh, at a minimum, send an email. But I'm yes. still old school. I like, you know, handwriting a note, drop it in, in the mail. Because nobody does. It's, funny. it's a great way to stay. Oh, hundred percent. I did that a bunch of. I forget when I was interviewing. A uh, bunch of years back, obviously, yeah. and uh, I did the. I did the card, and in between, so I did the interview. I mailed out the next day, and then like a day later, like you're not a fit. And I thought it'd be funny because then whatever three days after that, they're going to get a card. They're getting a card. Right? So, yeah. so be it. It was really nice stationery. I hope they enjoyed it. But, yeah. Know. Exactly. Exactly. Um, CRM, do you love yes. it or do you hate it? I, I dislike it. I view that CRMs are a reporting tool. They're not set up to help the team sell. Why is that? What do you think the holdback is or where the misalignment is there? I hear that answer a lot. Where okay. Where do you think the misalignment's at? So there, 
if I think about what, what do I need to get out of the CRM? So I'm looking at sales velocity. I'm looking at deal progression. I'm looking at a metric from going left to right. I'm looking at all those other things. My reps view it as busy work. Right. And so they're, they're, therein lies the disconnect between it. So you have one platform and this, this whole conversation around the, the data is true. I would say bullshit. The data is not true. If you look at, um, Casey Young, she's a, a GP, a general, uh, general partner, a primary venture. She does these brilliant posts on LinkedIn where she'll pick the same set of data, but represent it two different ways. And she'll say like, oh, here's one that shows our churn has been reduced. And here's another one that shows we have the worst churn ever. And it's the same numbers, right? So a lot of organizations, they'll hide behind the data and say, this is the data. Well, no, it's, it's who controls the data can dictate it. Let's take it at face value and say, fine, that's what it is. But how does that help my rep? Because my rep is looking and saying, I have 10 deals. I have 20 deals. I know where they are. How mm -hmm. does you harassing me about keeping this updated or that? And if you do get behind on Salesforce, God love you, because you can almost never catch up, right? No. And then if Salesforce breaks, then there's all these other issues and you inherit um, a person I used to work with. She ran ops at another company and she's like, oh, I, I manage the stupid rules. And I was like, well, like, what do you mean? What does that mean? She's like, well, I inherit all the work that the other person did before me. And I view it all as stupid rules. And when I move on and they bring in another person, they're going to think everything I did was stupid rules. So I inherit everyone else's stupid rules. And it was sort of yeah. tongue in cheek, but very to the point. Cause yeah. you, you bring your rev ops person in your Salesforce admin in, your finance yeah. people. And they all think, and even me in, in sales, I think my view of sales velocity is the singular best thing ever. You know what, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And then another person being like, I don't like Bradley's sales velocity formula, we're gonna do whatever, right? right? And But all those things become artifacts in the data, in the CRM, because you're afraid to change. Oh, God forbid we change and the reporting gets broken. I'll tell you what, the reporting was broken even before then. You're just making your, your all your decisions on equally bad, but consistent data. I think I said that correctly, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, the data is just, it's bad, we know, but it's always been bad. Right. So we're just going to build all of our decisions on it. So I don't know if that was passionate enough for you, but that's my attitude. Oh, no, I'm that's exactly the kind of answer I'd love to get. Uh, there's a lot of meat on that bone there. and, and uh, uh, Good, serving it up to you. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's, it's, it's number one, serum's not a crutch. It doesn't right. fix bad sales process. Um, you know, it's like, I, I tell this to people all the time, like people will call us and say, Hey, we need CRM. Like why? And like our sales process sucks. I'm like CRM's not going to fix that. You know, right. it's just, it's going to report on your bad sales process or you're going to capture a bunch of data, which may be questionable on your bad sales process, but it's not going to fix that. Um, you still have to do, there's no silver bullets. You still have to do all the hard work. You have to have good data. Yeah. But it's also, you can't, that's the other part that drives me nuts when I see this stuff is people think like, we'll have more data, that'll fix our problem. Um, keep it simple, keep yep. it focused, you know, put some guardrails in place. And if it's not helping the sales rep do their job, you know, that's the purpose, right? You know, it's like, we want to drive revenue. And if you're not helping the, the person that's responsible for that, you got a fundamental issue with your CRM. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the part where I think people struggle is like, oh, we need CRM. And it's that, well, how do we connect it to where it's actually going to be a tool 
that the rep is dependent, you know, is relying on to, to help them because they know, hey, if, if the way it's set up, it's helping me sell more. Um, it's identifying stuff where I can sell more. You know, like you mentioned earlier, the account execs that, you know, if you give them access into the data, you set it up the right way where they're able to drill down and find like, hey, if, you know, people are always buying A, I know they'll buy B and C, that's CRM, right? Right, you know, absolutely. You have to do that work to set it up to where it's truly a tool. Yep, no, 100% agree. Yeah. Um, we're at our time here on okay. Dog. It's been great, great talking with you, Bradley. If people want to reach out, connect with you, if they want to learn more about GuardSquare, what's the best way for them to do that? So if you're interested in learning more about GuardSquare, you could go to guardsquare.com. It's the easiest way to do it. If you do anything to do with mobile app development, you can actually scan your Android apps for free for vulnerabilities at uh, our one of our offerings called AppSweep. So I'd encourage you to do that. If you want to connect with me personally, I would say the best way to do it is LinkedIn. I get a lot of different notes. So I would my ask for you would be to reference this conversation, and then uh, I'll be able to follow you directly from there. We can go from there. Yep. And I want to hear back from you. How many people actually take the time to put like, hey, I saw you on sales lead dog in their outreach. I'll let you do that. The generic crap that everybody gets. Yeah, I will let you know that. <laughs> Bradley, thanks again for coming on sales lead dog and welcome to the sales lead dog pack. Yeah, thank you so much. As we end this discussion on Sales Lead Dog, be sure to subscribe to catch all our episodes. On social media, follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Watch the videos on YouTube. And you can also find our episodes on our website at impellercrm.com forward slash Sales Lead Dog. Sales Lead Dog is supported by Impeller CRM, delivering objectively better CRM for business, guaranteed.